but my students have, 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 have seen it. He's currently the secretary of the British Society for Literature and Science, educated uh, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. He's a professor of English at the University of Southampton in the UK. So uh, let's let Peter take over. Thank you. Thank you. Generous introduction, indeed. Thank you. I, they, they, when I that essay that you referred to, the line break in everyday life, that was mentioned in a review of the book by somebody who hadn't realised that you read from right to left, <laughs> who, who, who work, talked yeah. about my my love of incomprehensible uh, writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, uh, just by way then of beginning, I'd, I'd like to thank the. Uh, New writing series for the invitation to speak here. It's uh, great to be the warm up act for such uh, impressive people to come. Um, I, I'm particularly, I'd like to thank Anna Joy, uh, Anna Joy Springer for uh, really helping make this possible. I'd also uh, like to thank uh, Michael Davidson for, for inviting me here to, to San Diego and helping set this up. Thanks, Michael. Um, San Diego has been and continues to be a great place for new arts and writing. It's uh, really, really an honour for me to be here speaking to you today. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts about uh, uh, epigenetics, about some of the issues that I'm going to raise in this, uh, in this talk. Because I, I think we are really at a point where uh, our understanding of genetic inheritance and genetic identity is, is changing rapidly and the terms in which we think about that are altering fast and they're going to change the way we think about many issues relating to the self, identity and uh, inheritance. My talk is basically four parts. There's a, there are a few, there's a sort of preface and then there are four sections to it. There's an introduction to epigenetics, what is it? Then there's a discussion of poetry's possible role in debates and inquiries about the new genetics. There's a discussion where I try to say something about why poetry might have a place in our uh, literary engagement with genetics uh, alongside fiction. It seems to me that people would naturally think if you want a, a literary form that's going to best engage with a science, you'd go to fiction or the novel. And I want to suggest that it can do that in some ways, but in some ways poetry can do it more effectively. And finally, I'm going to offer a detailed discussion of what I think is an unusual and in many ways terrific poem about genetic dilemmas, The Four-Year-Old Girl by the poet Maymay Fersenbrugger. I want to cast our minds back now to the dark days of the end of the Second World War. In the winter of 1944-45, the major western cities of Holland experienced a severe famine. That's Amsterdam and the other western cities. Allied troops had been making their way into Holland in June 1944 when they were halted at Arnhem. The Dutch leadership in exile over in London called a railway strike, seemed a smart thing to do. And the Nazis, however, retaliated by cutting off food and fuel to all those Dutch cities. Things began to seem to improve in the late autumn, and, but just as supplies were beginning to get through, one of the most severe winters of the 20th century hit that part of the country. 
There was no canal traffic. There was no way of getting any food into those cities. Food was rationed. People had to make do with 800 calories if they were very lucky, but it was usually down to 400 or 200. Put it this way, it was so bad they were eating the tulip bulbs. That's, you know, that's, that has to be bad for that. Um, during this period, around 2,500 women were pregnant and gave birth, mostly, almost always, I think, to babies who were underweight. Holland was liberated in May 1945, and for these women and those children, the nutrition quickly returned to normal. Years later, I believe in the 1960s, 70s, medical researchers realized that they could study the effects of near starvation on the health of children through their lifetime. And indeed, on their offspring, in other words, the children and the grandchildren. And here we begin to get into epigenetics. One surprising finding of this medical research was that the grandchildren of those starving mothers consistently gave birth to underweight babies. Although according to orthodox genetics, for modern synthesis it's sometimes known, this really isn't genetically possible or likely. These findings about the underweight grandchildren were combined with research based on meticulous medical research on a farming community called, I'm going to mangle the name, Overcalix in rural Sweden in the late 19th and early 20th century. They kept meticulous medical records, very unusual. Together, these two histories suggest that somehow a severe environmental impact on can alter genetic makeup in a way that is inheritable. That's the key thing. One of the so transgenerational uh, effects are possible. Something happens to me, my grandchildren, possibly further on in time, they are affected. Now, everything we knew about genetics said, no, can't be done. And one of the most striking findings is that a grandfather on a restricted diet will have grandsons who are considerably less prone to diabetes than male descendants of grandfathers who ate a good diet before puberty. Now, that's even more strange. So, farmers who had gone through bad winters actually had grandchildren who were healthier. So maybe we should be all starving ourselves so that our grandchildren can be healthy. Mm. That's a cool. Well, so far, there's no firm scientific knowledge of exactly what mechanisms at work, but many clinical and biological researchers now believe that it's some form of epigenetics. Inheritable alterations to the pattern of DNA expression resulting from environmental stresses. Inheritable alterations to the pattern of DNA expression resulting from environmental stresses. Don't worry, that's the jargon. I want to say up front that I don't really have a right to use this jargon. I'm not an expert on genomics. You can go over to the genetics department if you want to learn all about this. I encountered epigenetics thanks to a government-funded research project led by my colleague, Claire, Professor Claire Hansen, in English. She thought we should all be asking more about the ethical and cultural implications of a move away from genetic determinism. I tried to hint at why that might be important, because once you start thinking, well, even the grandparents need to be healthy, you could actually have an even more oppressive set of regimes over the bodies of us all. So that's the danger, one of many dangers. 
She brought together leading theorists and clinicians working with the new genetics, along with historians, philosophers, literary scholars, and writers. And together, in, a, in, a, in an extended workshop and various other ways, we explored the role of metaphors of norms of inheritance and ideologies around health and disability. The discussions were inspiring, I think it's fair to say, for everyone. Literary people and scientific researchers all too rarely meet in the same room to talk openly about their knowledge and their uncertainties at the frontiers of their understanding. As um, Ben mentioned, I've just finished a book called Physics Envy. Actually, this material isn't in, in itself in the book, although some of the thinking behind it is. Um, I've been thinking a lot about science and poetry over the recent years. The sciences, especially the hard sciences, repeated, repeatedly have made it clear over the last century that poetry um, as a core intellectual activity is somehow, in their eyes, a thing of the past. Let me just give you one example. I could be here all night giving examples. <laughs> J. Robert Oppenheimer, in 1950, introduces the September issue of the Scientific American with a joke about the irrelevance of poetry in a scientific age. You like this joke, so he often repeated it. When, it's not really a joke, it's an anecdote. When this most famous American physicist was a young man, he had tried to write poetry himself. Paul Dirac, a leading uh, quantum physicist, took him aside and tactfully dismissed these juvenilia by reminding the young man of the status of poetry today. He said, in science, one tries to say something that no one knew before in a way that everyone can understand, whereas in poetry, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so poetry's sort of fusty, referentially challenged language can offer no reliable knowledge of the universe in which modern Americans live. So I find those attitudes very provocative, and what lies behind this talk is partly a wish to challenge that sort of thinking. Um, just to make sure So I'm now going to move on to the first part of my talk, um, and I begin by talking about a collection of essays by people who live with or have genetic disabilities. Amy Besky has collected together a series of essays in The Story Within by many very articulate people. You can find their, their name and the title on the handout. Amy Besky collects together a series of remarkable narratives by people who either have genetic disorders themselves or come from families scarred by them. The spirit of these narratives is exemplified by a bold statement by Claire Dunstead, an associate dean at Boston College, who comes from a family that hosts what's called the fragile X mutation. It, it, it hinders development in men, males. She says, and I want to come back to this quotation several times, Claire Dunstead says this, those of us living with genetic conditions are at the frontier of science and metaphysics. We're brave adventurers into the unknown as genetics scurries to keep up with lived experience. <laughs> These stories about Huntington's cystic fibrosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, retinitis pigmentosa, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Fanconia anemia, fragile X, and others raise many important issues. This naming of conditions, indeed, might suggest confidence in medical certainty about the role of genetic inheritance. But again and again, these writers call into question the idea of fixed and direct genetic causality 
One writer cites James Watson's typically ebullient claim that, quote, now we know, in large measure, our fate is in our genes, and other even more inflated claims by people involved in the Human Genome Project, before arguing, quote, that the genomic reality does not support such claims. She says, even rare and formidable broken genes don't operate in a vacuum. I love that idea of formidable broken genes. The contributors resist the idea of an unchallengeable genetic fate. Claire Dunster recalls watching her fragile ex-afflicted son outdoors one day. He was for once unafraid, not a victim of his genetic legacy. He was just a young man open to what might come his way. And I think it's a great collection because the contributors are interested in what might come their way, in the importance of environments as well as genetics, and will no doubt welcome the new thinking about environments that has, is increasingly associated with epigenetics. In this talk, I want to explore how a poem, Maymay Bersenbrugger's poem, Four-Year-Old Girl, and a novel, Michael Byer's Long for This World, draw on the resources of the aesthetic to represent and understand genetic variation at points where this variation generates perceived disability. Although neither text explicitly addresses epigenetics, the same drive to understand genetic information in terms of development and environment, which now drives much biological and medical research in epigenetics, is also present in these essays. In fact, I'm going to suggest a bit provocatively, I hope, that Long for This World is an epigenetic novel <coughs> and four-year-old girl. Those are um, copies of the poem, actually. Uh, but that's fine. Oh, I, I just got Yeah, it's all right. I, I, we ran out of handouts, so you may have to share. But there's some copies of the poem there for anyone who wants to take one home. But there aren't enough to go around, I'm not afraid. Um, where, where so I'm going to suggest that the novel is a kind of epigenetic novel, Long for This World, and Four-Year-Old Girl, the poem, is, a, is an investigation of the semantic space now being opened up by epigenetics. One of the source quotations that Maymay Bersenbrugger chose for her poem, Four-Year-Old Girl, is a definition of what is called ecogenetic disorder, ecogenetic disorder, and she got it from a textbook, Genetics and Medicine. It's defined as a disorder resulting from the interaction of a genetic predisposition to a specific disease with an environmental factor. Ecogenetic, in fact, is still in use to cover a broad range of gene-environment interactions, and it's linked to enviromics as well as genomics. I don't get a chance to use the word enviromics very often. <laughs> and I'm not going to define it for you either. Um, it's similarity to, that is, ecogenetics, similarity to, yet difference from epigenetics, is a reminder of the complex semantic field around epigenetics. For anyone coming from a background in literature and poetry, epigenetics is fascinatingly rich in all kinds of new exfoliating words and variations on those words because they really don't have the right names if they ever will, yet. I just want to say a little bit then about what is epigenetics. The first thing to know is that in the 18th and 19th centuries, early 19th century, epigenesis was a biological theory that developed in opposition to a theory of preformation. Preformation, I guess, was the dominant theory, and that was the idea that somehow if you could look inside an egg or you could look inside a seed, you'd actually find a mini version of the adult. 
So if you could really open an acorn properly, you'd find an oak tree. It seems sort of mad, but how else? Nobody could account for it. Um, and epigenesis was, I think, a more reasonable theory that what was actually happening was somehow a transformation of these materials into the adult form. Recent popular books on epigenetics largely agree that the current definition of the term derives from Conrad Waddington, absolutely fascinating figure, C.H. Uh, Waddington, who was aware of the term's long genealogy when he suggested using it in a new sense to describe the causal processes involved in development. Waddington's intervention was not decisive in the natural usage. The term continued to be highly plastic in the 70s, for example, Edward Wilson came up with what he called epigenetic rules that govern human development by combining cultural effects with the effects of natural selection on the history of the human genome. Um, Ray Armentrout has an, an early poem in which she, uh, her, the poetry resonates with Wilson's ideas about uh, biology and, and this. Um, but coming back to this, um, and very, other people had other theories about what these epigenetic processes might be, but I just want to read you one more by Richard Stroman, uh, who was a, a molecular biologist at Berkeley and an outspoken critic of genetic determinism. He argues that the logic of health and disease resides not in genes alone, but in holistic epigenetic regulatory networks in cells and in all organisms. Networks, and this is the thing I want you to concentrate on, epigenetic networks that are coextensive with the external world. Coextensive with the external world. Well, at this point, the term epigenetic risks disappearing into a kind of mist of everything. So from the late 1980s onwards, uh, scientists began to want to tighten up, what, what, to think more specifically about what sort of environment might be affecting DNA and, and growth. One of the pioneers of the study of methylation now believed to be a key actual mechanism by which DNA is switched on and off. Robin Holloway argues that epigenetics comprises the study of the switching on and off of genes during development. Um, the segregation of gene activities following cell division and the stable inheritance of a given spectrum of gene activities in specific cells. It's, it's this idea that these patterns of gene expression can be inherited that has come to de be defining for current epigenetics. Uh, Robin Holloway also argues that there's a need for a conceptual or theoretical framework to help understand the strategy of genes in unfolding the program of development. And that's something you hear from lots of people. We've got, we've got these troubling facts, and we don't always understand if we've really got facts, but we don't seem to have the framework yet. That seems to remain elusive. Uh, Nessa Carey, in an excellent book on epigenetics, I think it's on the bibliography, says, quote, when scientists talk about epigenetics, they're referring to all the cases where the genetic code alone isn't enough to describe what's happening. There must be something else going on as well. There's been some wonderful work on identical twins. Um, if you know about identical twins, you'll know that they're not identical. But genetically, they're identical absolutely right down and this might be a mutation. So why is it that one might get Parkinson's as I, now I know an identical twin, he's got Parkinson's his twin hasn't. How could that be? Because it's obviously got some uh, 
genetic com component, and so on and so forth. Um, some historian, yes, I don't want to say too much about that. Um, I suppose I should just say that some historians and indeed some biologists uh, uh, say that we should be a bit cautious about making big claims for epigenetics. The notion of switching on and off genes, which itself, of course, is a, a, a tricky metaphor, is done according to epigenetics by two biochemical processes. One, the main one they've investigated, is methylation, by which, jargon again, 5-methylcytosine replaces simple cytosine in a string of bases by which the DNA code, in inverted commas, is constructed. And some, some people have pointed out that you hardly ever find cytosine, which is one of the, uh, the four uh, bases that, by which the amino acid expression is coded. There's, uh, you never find cytosine without something attached to it. I want to quote Evelyn Fox Keller by way of finishing this first part of the talk. Um, she starts her recent book, a brilliant book, probably the place for start if you're interested in this, The Mirage of a, of a Distance, I think, Between Nature and Nurture. She says this, Almost all human traits are transmitted from one generation to the next, but at the same time, let's also accept the fact that the mechanisms of transition are varied. They may be genetic, epigenetic, cultural, or even linguistics. So she places epigenetics, very interesting to me, discursively between genetics and culture. Right, well, I'm going to go on into the, the second part of my talk and just think about poetry <coughs> and genetics. A poem like Bersenbrugger's Four-Year-Old Girl circulates in a culture that already has a number of expectations about the value and role of poetry that range from scientific stereotyping of poetry as wild inquiry to the use of poetry as consolation or emotional catharsis to the idea of poetry as experiment, inquiry, or even cultural broker for new ideas. And in fact, I think when science poets, most, mostly when poets engage with science, they tend to be cultural brokers for the ideas. So I think I want to place... Uh, her poem in this wider context for a moment. And what I really want to do is to, is to think about a couple of ways in which poetry is understood in order to see what she's pushing back against. The first thing to say is that scientists are very worried uh, if they're accused of being poetic. Um, I'll just give you one example. Um, Anita Allen uh, 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 I forget what her scientific expertise is, I think she's a biologist, uh, criticised um, Matt Ridley's book, Genome, not for its sexism, which stands out a mile, or even for its teleological qualities, but because, she says, of what, uh, because of what she calls Ridley's poetry. And that's the worst crime he could have committed. Because what does Ridley do? He likens the genome to a book and Anita Allen calls this idea poetry, and confusing poetry at that. And I just mention this because uh, this is the climate in which poets, like mainly Bersenberger, who want to write about uh, genetics, find themselves. But the second thing I want is, and, and actually I've got a bit about cultural brokers, you, you can find this online, but if you look up uh, the UK Genomics Forum, actually if you look up genomics in America too, you'll find that they run poetry prizes and there are 
lots and lots of poems written on sort of quasi-commissioned peace prizes, but I'm not going to talk about that. What I want to talk about are uh, a couple of poems written by people living with children who have Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome is generally now thought of as an epigenetic illness, and that's because it, it arises from damage to the chromosome 15, and the problem is that the, you need to have you, you need to have a, a, a gene from your mother on this chromosome in healthy form. Uh, but if you get them, I'm actually I might be scrambling this. I'm sorry. I might be proud of Willie. I knew I'd do this. But anyway, the point is that some there are certain cases where you have to have the right gene from the right parent to be expressed. And if you don't, you can get a, a truly terrible genetic condition. Angelman syndrome means that the child is um, very underdeveloped, the brain doesn't develop properly, they can't speak, and they look quite small. And in, in one of those terrible ways that used to probably still does happen, these children were called happy puppets. Happy puppets. Anyway, back to my talk. Um, and I mustn't digress too much, otherwise I'll never get through this. The poems in a collection of writing by people living with those who have Angelman syndrome respond to the voicelessness of the condition, intimating that poetry can somehow find that voice, can speak, for an expressivity denied articulation by cognitive deficit. So the very first poem there is written by the aunt of a child with a syndrome. She writes, I think, a powerful free verse celebration, amateur verse, of a child's physical aggressions. I bite, I pinch, I slap, I stomp, I whine, I'm communicating. Don't you hear me? My language is not words. And so on. Um, by presenting the poem as, a, as if the child had written it, the aunt overcomes impossibility by creating an imagined space for intersubjective affects to flourish. I won't read the second poem, but it gives you an idea of a kind of folk poetry, of which there's an enormous amount. And I often think that uh, when we're studying uh, serious poetry, we shouldn't forget that it, it relies on a great deal of other uh, amateur and folk poetic activity for, it, for its soil, like for, it, for, the, for the fertility of, of the poetry. You know, it's not, it's not the enemy of this poetry. Thurston Brugger's poem, Four-Year-Old Girl, takes place against this backdrop of expectations about poetry. Thurston um. Brugger's poem about the consequences of genetic illness, it's on the second page there, um, uh, an extract from it, is, I think, justly well known, despite the demands it makes on the reader, because of the manner in which it employs advanced poetic techniques to scan the language of genetic medicine for signs of hope and signs of pathology. She confronts textbook accounts of a number of genetic illnesses, including fragile X and Angelman syndrome, with ideas about identity taken from psychoanalysts, philosophers, religious thinkers. And she does this in a form that invites readers to think of her poem as the articulations of a mother and daughter confronted by some elusive genetic inheritance that may endanger one or both of them. As Eileen Tabios says, Bersenbrugger co-ops and feminizes the technical language, which she then opens out to scrutiny and transformation. Uh, okay. The final line of Four-Year-Old Girl 
that love has no quality or value, but only lasts a length of time, different time, across which unfolds her singularity without compromising life as a whole, typifies the difficulty that we encounter when translocating poetry into a scientific domain. Love is a value we're all likely to endorse, but how does it translate into research and policy? Isn't this a reminder that poetry is too removed from the world of scientific knowledge, once it starts talking about love, for example, to be of any use? We're unlikely to ask how a string quartet can help us understand genetics, but why should we ask that about poetry? Now, of course, I think we should, if only because there are ways in which this language art is working, is able to work with a number of features of language in intense ways. It can work with the pragmatics of language, with the context of address. It can intimate that the inferences to be made from metaphors, etymologies, speech acts, or the interlocking affects and beliefs that inhere in contemporary discursive usages, but are rarely but equally, poems are rarely good vehicles for rigorous analysis or testing of data. In a few moments, then, I'm going to offer a close reading of Burson River's poem, in which I argue that poetry can be a partner to the medical science if it's attentive to the interactive <coughs> dynamics between language, body, and environment. It also incorporates attentively some of the discourse of genetics and the patient experience. So it, I know that I'm saying if poetry pays attention to what those people were saying about living at the frontiers of science and metaphysics. But first I want to say something more about the aesthetic conditions in which contemporary poetry works. And to do this, I think it's helpful to look at another kind of aesthetic practice that might seem more suited to our concerns. Our concern, how can we have a poetry of the new genetics. And that's the realist novel. I want to argue that, in fact, the novel can brilliantly simulate the lived experience of those caught up in relationships with genetic disorder. The poem Four-Year-Old Girl is, is, takes the notion of a mother and daughter, and the daughter may have inherited a genetic illness. Now, on the surface, that's much better suited to treatment by a novel, you would think. And I want to suggest that, that, that the realist novel, or the novel in general, really, falters when handling questions of how discourse enframes the science and metaphysics. I want to say, in fact, that novel and poem are more complementary than we sometimes recognise. So I want to just say a little about the, the, the novel. I'll, I'll keep this a bit short. In Amy Besky's collection of genetic narratives, the brother of a boy with Angelman syndrome says hopefully that, quote, knowing what is scientifically wrong will help you understand situations better. Let me read that again. Listen to it. Knowing what is scientifically wrong will help you understand situations better. Well, of course, what he really means is knowing scientifically what is wrong. But he's got it back to front. But of course, his accidental inversion hints at a submerged anguish and a feeling that maybe those scientists are really responsible for what's happened to my brother. Um, there must be something wrong with the science is an understandable, if non-rational, emotional response to the painful situation of living with a profoundly disabled sibling. 
Now, although the science is not wrong in the sense of being responsible for what's happened to the brother, the possibility of wrongness must not be discounted. Science is always getting it wrong, and, but it corrects its mistakes, or tries to. This, in a way, is how science progresses when it does. Medicine, therefore, presents a challenge to non-specialists of all kinds, including brothers of patients and, and creative writers, the challenge of how to work out what trusting the current science will entail, while remaining alert to, uh, quote, what is or might potentially be wrong scientifically, in the spirit of respectful support for such research. In Michael Byer's novel, the, uh, main one of the main protagonists is Henry Moss. He represents science. He's a clinical specialist in a fictional genetic syndrome called Hickman. I don't know if you need to know that really, but I'll just say that. Um, but it's a, it, it accelerates aging. No patient has lived beyond 17. Henry has a number of patients, but for various reasons, he's become very attached to a boy called William, William Durbin, a boy whose life expectancy is daily measured in months. Now, so far, so normal. But, um, suddenly and unexpectedly, the doctor discovers a, a young man who has the mutation, he ought to be a very sick person indeed, but he's perfectly healthy. How can this be? Well, according to the novel, he has an enzyme that enables him to resist the effects of the mutation. Great. We'll get the enzyme out of this boy and we'll put it into somebody else. But if you know anything about medical research, you'll know you don't do that. In the novel, however, Henry crosses the line. He's so tempted. He, the boy is the same age as his son. He's under various other pressures. He does it. So he, he distills the enzyme, he generates it in the lab, he injects it into this sick boy. And the sick boy seems to recover uh, so far. But meanwhile, the doctor seems to go slightly crazy. So he has to sleep in the attic, he babbles in his sleep, he does all sorts of funny things, he starts acting out in a big way. And the entire family start acting out. And that's what the novel, I think, is very clever at. So uh, the daughter tries to start a relationship with the young man who has the uh, magic enzyme. The son becomes a very close friend and does various dangerous things with the sick boy. And Ilsa, who's uh, the mother in this family, decides to give up her job as a hospital administrator and so on. So the whole family, I think, acts out a kind of dynamic, which in a way is a projection of the experience of this sick boy. So though this is a realist novel, at another level it's not realist at all. It's a very clever psychodrama that's sort of projected outwards. You can look at the novel in, from different directions. Now, um, um, uh, and I wanted just also to say that um, Michael Byers is a son of a leading geneticist called Peter Byers, and you can look him up, and he has a whole range of papers, and indeed, as far as I know, he's doing cutting-edge research in just this field. So Michael Byers knows what he's talking about. That's what I want to say. Now, the, the, the one thing I want to focus on, I may be... I don't know if I'm anything out. Ah, this is it. Okay. Michael Byers introduces a very poignant, painful theme quite about halfway through the novel. William, the boy who's going to die soon, 
begins to speculate that he's really an alien. Claire Dunsford, in that collection of essays I mentioned, points out that, quote, among the unpleasant things you get used to when you receive a genetic diagnosis is the experience of hearing yourself or your loved ones described in clinical language that makes you sound like an alien, a primitive, or an animal. William, the boy, speculates that he's really a visitor from another planet who finds himself in what to him is an alien and fatal situation on a planet where he can't thrive. This consoling science fiction fantasy is generously treated by the novel, and in doing so, the novel tacitly recognises its own fictional status. Unfortunately, William does look like cartoon images of aliens, that's, that's said several times. Um, and William also says, maybe there's a world where I don't have this and we could somehow tunnel between universes. Um, I, what I think is going on here is that, in a way, the novel um, is suggesting that um, it itself has limitations. It's, this is a novel, after all, this is a science fiction of a kind. Um, and William's unrolling fantasy that he's an alien um, makes us think about the fiction, the science as fiction itself. To put this more explicitly, the novel meets one of its sharpest limits when it comes up against scientific epistemology. After all, it's fiction. Um, it can't go very far into thinking about the scientific epistemology and the language by which it realises itself. Now, I want to argue that this is where poetry can potentially go further, even though it might not be able to do the, the, the social and, and economic dimensions that the novel, yeah, I think, does very effectively, the poetry can go deeper into the language. And so now, in the final part of the talk, I want to talk about uh, Mei Mei Burson-Rubber's four-year-old girl. It's probably a good idea if you just have um, that uh, page open in front of you. It's one of 11 poems in a collection called <coughs> Four-Year-Old Girl. Most of the poems explore how aesthetic experiences, ranging from sensory intensities to memories and intimations of mortality, create changing boundaries of self and environment. For example, a storm on the horizon creates minute pressures you feel with your body. Mersenbrugger is especially interested in borders between self and other. Another poem, you don't have to touch the border to know how it feels, whether a napkin or a rose petal feels softer, the border between you or the end of her life. As the length of the, this single line indicates, these are poems written in such long lines, they approach the form of prose poetry, even though Mersenbrugger retains lineation. Her style is almost anti-poetic, avoiding any obvious metrical regularity or metaphorical compaction. Some poems, in some poems, the sentences extend over line breaks, but the four-year-old girl is distinctive because every line is a complete sentence. It has six parts and almost 80 lines. I haven't given you it all there. There are, as I say, two copies there if you want to look at it. She oscillates between three positions, the biomedical understanding of genetic disease, Theories of language and subjectivity capable of, quote, reducing a parent to the universality of signifier, unquote, 
and a poetic apprehension of experience as fluid intensities whose elusive and emotional perception is not fully represented by either the medicine or the philosophy. The poem begins, as you see there, the genotype is her genetic constitution. The phenotype is the observable expression of the genotype as structural and biochemical traits. Genetic disease is extreme genetic change against the background of normal variability. As we read on, it's not entirely obvious in that section, but it seems to become clear that the mother of a four-year-old girl is struggling with what seems to be a genetic fate that has befallen them both. Like the mother in uh, the Coburn poem that I rushed over earlier, but the, the rather <laughs> sickly sweet poem, this mother can still recall joy at birth, a compaction of potential and no potential. That's a line from the Angelman mother's uh, poem. Bursa Brugger's poem appears to present a dilemma in which both mother and daughter want, would like to be inspired to change the genotype. <clears throat> Yet how might they do this? Might the findings of recent epigenetic research help? Or might they increase the pain by hinting that maternal or even grand maternal misbehaviour was in some ways responsible for the daughter's condition? The poem's answer is complex, though it can be roughly paraphrased the suggestion that knowledge or comprehension is not a sufficient relation to the world of human experience. As the poem puts it, the world of the imaginary exists. In the final uh, part of the poem, as I said, we're told that love has its own temporality. And what Bersenbrugger's poem achieves, I think, is an understanding of how apparently incompatible yet equally valid modes of thought can coexist. Now, in talking about mother and daughter, I did try to use words like seems and appears quite deliberately, because although this poem appears to be autobiographical, and in fact we know from interviews that Mei Mei Bersenbrugger herself was worried that she might have sustained genetic uh, damage from, I think, pesticides and, and so forth. In fact, this is not uh, uh, an autobiographical poem. The um, uh, critic Eileen Tabios was given access to Bersenbrugger's notebooks for this poem, and they reveal that almost every line in the poem started as a quotation of some kind. From about 11 sources, I think there are a few more. And she took phrases, ideas, and images. <coughs> Let me just give you an example of where they came from. From Deepak Chopra's blend of Western and Ayurvedic medicine in quantum healing. From the textbook, an orthodox textbook, Genetics in Medicine. From the Buddhist monk Thrangpu Ramposh on Buddha nature. Or even Sandra Ingerman's unabashedly shaman account of what she calls soul retrieval, as well as perhaps more familiar names like Jack Lacan, John Bowlby, John Cage, Agnes Martin, <coughs> and Georges Bataille. As the titles reveal, Bersenbrugger began work on the poem in a way by convening in her poetic workspace a panel of experts. Okay, how can we understand genetic disability? Well, let's get everybody possible in. Shamans, genetic researchers, uh, philosophers, 
and, and the wilder the better, but also the orthodox people, John Bowlby, with all his rather narrow theories of inheritance. Let's get it all out there and see what we can find. I'll just give you one example of how these very incommensurable epistemologies of human identity are brought together. Uh, Dr. Chopra, who, as I say, tries to combine Western medicine with uh, uh, salvation medicine, says this, gifted with total flexibility in our nervous systems, we all have the choice to build boundaries or tear them down. If you knew how to control the creation of impulses of intelligence, you would be able not only to grow new dendrites, but anything else. So Chopra is virtually saying, you know, just you go for it. You know, you just <laughs> if you meditate well enough, you can be an epigeneticist from the level of consciousness. Let's go back then to the poem, and I'd like you to think about how um, this poem works in the remainder of my talk. It's intensely reflexive. Its line-by-line statements are, in its own words, quote, or observable expressions, unquote. We're invited to be critical, empathetic observers of the behavior of these expressions. Isolating each sentence on a single line <clears throat> underlines the role of the proposition as the inner narrative of the sentence. The line break snaps shut on each statement, giving it redoubled force of assertion. Yet although the poem is constructed of a series of such forceful statements, which at times <coughs> just begin to start to build towards bigger lines of argument or narrative, their apposition invites another kind of reading in which we treat each statement as deserving of study in isolation, of reflection in isolation. We ask, what sort of statements are these? What does it mean to utter the first line, for example? Let's look at those first sentences. They all have the word is, but it's a very sneaky copular indeed. It could be an abbreviation of is defined as. The genotype is defined as her genetic constitution. Uh, but the familiar word constitution, commonly used, of course, to mean the workings of our entire physiology, also carries a secondary meaning, that the genotype acts similarly to a founding statement of the kind which underpins American political and legal existence. In fact, is, the copula, occurs in the first eight sentences, progressively, gradually undergoing a transition from largely definitional equivalents to far more elusive claims about the relations it transacts. For example, let's take the fifth line. She believes she is herself, which isn't complete madness. It's belief. Let's unpack that. She believes she is herself, but of course suggests she's feeling all right, which would be ironic. When we say that she's not feeling herself today, we mean that her usual sense of self has been displaced by the sense of being unwell. Notice that we don't generally mean, I'm feeling myself today. We don't mean this. So, but we take for granted. But actually, it's because we could do that that this, this, this idea works. Here, however, this phrase takes on a second connotation. She believes she's autonomous. Her selfhood is ultimately independent of determining forces. She believes, in other words, we might say she has free will. But even a third meaning insists on itself. She believes that her sense of being a self, of self-awareness manifest in self-consciousness, 
is the very core of who and what she is. The poetic frame does not allow this statement to go unqualified, however, and the line continues in an apparently dismissive negative, which isn't complete madness, it's belief. I'm exaggerating, but that's the point of it. Thinking of oneself in some or all of these ways as an autonomous self may be dis dismissed as a delusion, but the poem is willing to allow that it is at least a belief, and therefore can be argued with, um, however unreasonable it might appear to others. And who, we might ask, of course, are these others? This belief is not simply a mental phantom. Um, and that's right. Bersenbrugger's uh, poem appears to speak in its own voice, yet like a voice on a purely tuned radio station, other voices can be heard overlaying it. This is, as it were, a particularly noisy intertextuality. I don't think Bersenbrugger is trying to call attention to lost or hidden voices and perhaps the manner of Susan Howe, but to a multiplicity of voices that somehow need to be heard together, even though they seem irreconcilable. So she convenes a medley of voices articulating epigenetic themes, plasticity and development, influences of environment on genetic inheritance, and questions of how to conceptualise these processes. She creates an intense, extended moment of time in which many competing aesthetic experiences converge, notably, I think, in the final section. To conclude, then, Claire Dunsford's portraits of people with genetic syndromes finding themselves at the frontier of medicine and metaphysics while waiting for genetics to catch up with their lived experience has guided my discussion of how an avant-garde poem might contribute to this catching up. Maymay Bersenbrugger's poem works to bring the pragmatics of scientific discourse into proximity with very strong affects by sketching out possible scenarios in which a mother and daughter might struggle to articulate their mutual relations as modes of inheritance and mutable identity, all the while signalling how provisional such constructions must be. Her poem is strongest, I think, in areas where the novel is least able to venture, such as the epistemological authority or the propositional force of scientific language and its metaphorical reach. The novel, though, I think is most effective in the tracing of specific subjectivities and intersubjectivities under pressure from genetic instability. Neither excludes or displaces the other. In constructing this essay, I've tried to convene the discourses of a number of epistemic constituencies who are not ordinarily in direct touch, bringing scientists, clinicians, people disabled by genetic syndromes, uh, critics and writers together, as far as possible on their own terms. We are, to twist an old saying, too often, too often divided by a common language. And I'd like to finish up by just giving you a couple of remarks from the uh, workshop that we held with uh, uh, scientists and writers together. Oh, sorry, I've lost a page here. That's it, yeah. The um, <coughs> uh, Cambridge... Oh, I need <coughs> <coughs> Environmental stress is affecting my genes. <laughs> Wolf Reich, the uh, uh, Cambridge uh, biologist... Uh, working at very cutting edge of epigenetic work with uh, animals, with insects, I think, um, uses the current astrophysics metaphor of dark matter to describe areas of the genome whose workings are unknown. 
So striking to me, he says, he, he says he thinks that environment is affecting about 20% of the genes, that 60% of the genome is just dark matter, and only that remaining 20% have we really begun to understand. That's pretty striking. This is from some. He said this at this uh, workshop, and this is somebody who should know. But the final point I want to give you is this. Um, <clears throat> one of the, I, I think it was Marcus Pembrey, I may be wrong, but one of the scientists said, um, are we perhaps not over-invested in the epigenetic moment? And somebody from the outside says, are, are we just, just relieved that finally genetic determinism is backing away? And then somebody pitched in and said, um, <clears throat> said this, our motto should be, keep the tension. Keep the tension. And that's where I want to finish. That's it. Uh, Ray, yes. Taking questions, Ray? Uh, yes, I'll try. All right. Well, um, I've only read a bit about epigenetics, and so I have a, a question about it that maybe you can answer. <clears throat> yeah. Um, in the studies that you referred to, and they're also the ones I read about, the stress that affects the genes in subsequent generations is nutritional stress. But there are so many other kinds of stress. Has there been research on whether, say, uh, children born during the blitz or any other kind of um, you know, exposure to sustained violence, children, if they're already born in Nazi yeah. concentration camps, uh, et cetera. Has there been research? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any. That's such a good question. Asking whether there might be research on other kinds of uh, environmental stress is it perhaps important just to underline that I had to learn this myself, that environment might be the placental environment mm -hmm. as much as, you know, the big space around us. Um, and um, there's been lots of research on mice, on bees, I think, on uh, certain kinds of plants, um, but the difficulties of working with human beings are such that that unless you have these long runs of medical records or you have very detailed records, it, it's, it's very hard to do. So I, I think not. Um, I know that there's a lot of work going on uh, to look at the effects of the maternal environment on children in first generation. And some of that would be epigenetic. Um, the, 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 pri the reason they focus on grandchildren is because especially if you go down the male line, then you can't explain, you can't explain effects on the grandson in term, and say, well, actually, you know, she, she was an underweight mother and she grew up, but actually she was never really looking after herself. So when she had a baby, the, the environment, the baby wasn't very good. And people have said this, you know, so they try to discredit maternal line transmission. But with male line transmission, it, you know, it does seem to be genetic. Um, Does this hold for mother to child, as well, or parent to child, as well as parent to grandchild? Yeah, yes, I mean, the, um, <clears throat> to come back, I mean, I, I, I wrote this talk originally, I, I, need, I feel like I need to apologize in a way, that I, this talk comes out of a paper I wrote, and it came out of this project, and 
And so we, we had all sort of thrashed out our definitions and so on. So I should go back to the beginning with epigenetics. What, what, what's, what it's about is this, that it was just assumed that DNA could not be altered. DNA was fixed. That was the central dogma, according to James Watson and I think Francis Crick and many others. Um, but what they now realize is, is that the, the genes are in a constant state of being uh, sort of worked on. They're, they're sometimes they're completely off, sometimes they're completely on, but very often they're on middle states. And there's a particularly powerful process when um, the sperm and the egg get together, that, that there's, a, there's a process by which a lot of the markers that have controlled the switching of genes are stripped out, and then the new egg is sort of, in a way, the idea is the new egg starts afresh. But then the shocking thing was to discover that not all the markers were stripped out. One of the books on epigenetics has this suggestion, which I quite like, and you'll like it if you've got a literary background. Think of Think of Shakespeare writing those plays. We, we only know about them because they're printed. But now if you're a theatre director, you are very likely to take the text and start annotating it. And you'll probably cut out some lines or cut out the comics, you know, because you think <laughs> nobody understands that. Um, and so this annotated version is rather like the epigenetic markers on the DNA. That's one of the ways it's been explained. But then over time, people forget. People leave lines out and they don't somehow come back in. So they get completely... So, so there is some degree of transmission. So the, the theatre director in the 18th century tampers with the text and somehow that becomes a bit more of the standard text than some earlier one. So, and, so that's an analogy that I find helpful. I mean, there are also scribes errors <coughs> Typographical errors. That Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes along. There was a story in the New York Times today about the uh, research on these um, almost petrified scrolls that have survived in oh, yes. uranium. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, one of the hopes was you know, to find, say, an original version of Virgil from that time when Virgil was so exciting uh, isn't it, that you idea. Know, before it got into the hands of scribes and scribes scribing from yes, other yes. scribes. Yes, like Dead Sea Scrolls have that yeah. quality mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I was wondering too, you know, when, when, particularly when you started with the uh, uh, grandparental or grandchild generation. Yes, uh, yeah. uh, you know, but, but, but just the whole thing, uh, what, what is the relation to what during the Cold War we Lysenkoism. Ah, very good question. Ask it. Uh, <coughs> ask about Lysenkoism. The, uh, yeah. <coughs> the, the short answer is that <coughs> Lysenko's uh, claim that he had winter wheat, which actually led to the starvation of millions of Russians, mm -hmm. so discredited this idea that, that there, there could be uh, genetic modifications resulting from. from environmental change passed from one generation to the next. And that was happening very rapidly. It's so discredited the field that nobody could work on it till the 1980s, not openly. In fact, I think Barbara McClintock at Cold Spring Harbor and uh, in America, and a few people like Conrad Waddington. Uh, Conrad Waddington, by the way, was a, a sort of sea, fellow traveler anyway. So he wasn't bothered about the Lysenko affair. But most people were, so they didn't work on it. 
There were a number of questions. There was one at the back, and there was one over here. Here, and Michael had asked the question. So, yes. so um, thank you for this, Peter. Uh, as, as I understand it, it seems to me that epigenetics is a, um, a rather attractive, you know, variation from from the knowledge that biology is destiny, and you know, that's that was always very unattractive, you know. But but is there a further extension in that? Uh, no matter how it's inherited, the genetic difficulties can perhaps be cured or modified by some kind of environmental technique, or do they not go No, there? There, there's, there's a huge effort going into exactly that, because uh, there's, uh, in one of the things I was reading, there was some quite extraordinary uh, work done with Rett syndrome, I think it's called, I can't remember, but, but anyway, you can, apparently you can induce it in mice, and uh, what they found was was that they by tampering exactly with the uh, methylation, they could in fact cure the mice. And now the human beings have this syndrome, and it's not I, it's it's a bad disability. It's, it, and and so it, they're very very excited by this research. So yes, is the answer. Um, now wait a minute. Um, I think it, yeah. So I just have a question. I have to your response, but um, I'm really curious um, about this just dramatic response among um, literature scholars to epigenetics, I think much more than a lot of other recent scientific discoveries, and I'm speaking as a literature scholar who spends a lot of time as an epigenetic scholar, but um, I, my theory has been uh, that it reminds us a little bit of Lamarckianism. And that yeah, Lamarck yeah. and this idea of something that opposes Darwin, that goes off to the side, has always attracted poets, writers. We, we like this idea that the environment um, has something to do with our destiny, and that it's not all this weird process of natural selection. That you know, yeah. that you know, even if we've selected to do one thing, you know, all of a sudden mm -hmm. the world is flooded. Maybe we'll our feet will turn into fins and we'll swim away, and we'll be on everything will be okay. Um, and it reminds me of I mean, Osip Mandelstam, the Russian poet, back in the was writing about Lamarck, and he was longing for Lamarck and wanted the world oh, yes, yes, so into yes. to Darwin. I, I, I don't think I realized that was very into Lamarck. Yeah, and very anti-Darwin. But I, mean, you know, I guess I'm curious as to your thoughts about why this is so appealing, or, or has always been. Um, oh, well, I, I think hmm, there's certainly ways to answer that. I mean, one, one, one answer is, is, is that, that uh, genetic determinism led to eugenics, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of a lot of writers that push back against mm -hmm. eugenics, and they haven't known how to do that in a scientifically compelling way. It's um, anti-teleological. Yeah, yeah. Another way of answering you is to say that actually, the when you talk to the the, the clinical the, the researchers, they're much more cautious than we literary types tend to be. And they'll say, yes, but you know, it, it's not Lamarck. They always say that. It's almost the first thing they say. You know, yes, you know, Lamarck may have had a hint of what was it, but it isn't just it isn't like a just so story, you know, where you know the elephant gets his trunk because it's pulled by the uh, crocodile. <laughs> you see. And so then he inherits then the elephant's children inherit the, the long trunk. That that that's a caricature of Lamarck. But, and in fact Lamarck I believe did have some good evidence. Well, although he tended to step, not to be able to distinguish the two. Um, so yes, I think there is a risk of inflating this, David, to come back to you. Um, but, but the other answer I give, that the risk of going, uh, 
over in going somewhere else entirely, is, is that my sense is that the dominant mode of poetry now for quite a long time has been the personal lyric, which from one of its foundations is, is familial inheritance. That is, there's just an endless number of poems. Seamus Heaney is my great example of this. There are many, many poets whose whole career is based on them being able to establish a lineage. And you have to ask yourself what that's about. Why, why has that become important? Why can't you just speak as a poet without naming your father, your mother, or perhaps your grandparents? I think inheritance has, has been a very, very powerful factor in my thinking. And so, uh, and, and now if that's genetic, that it locks it in somehow, so that the epigenetic seems to open out possibilities. But right. so long, longer answer. Thank you. No, that um, uh, yeah, there's a question there and a question there. Um, I was interested in, in the process that you had to go through in order to write this, which is to connect poetry and science, which have traditionally been separated, and you did it by poems that allude to and refer to alternate ways of thinking about genetics, but it occurred to me that if, if we take the term environmental impact and so forth, broadly enough, we could talk about diseases as discursive acts. In other words, they, they are invented in diagnosis. Uh, yeah, Asperger's yeah. syndrome, you know, some years ago was just a fidgety child. Uh, yeah. and, and, certain ki and, and AIDS, of course, was propagated through discourse. So it seems to me that one of the ways that you can um, make the link between poetics and science is by talking about the discursive elements that must <coughs> through things like diag diagnosis and also social prejudice and attitudes about what kinds of subjects get to be called subjects. Now that's not genetic exactly, but it has an impact, especially in terms of research, on, on that propagation that you're talking about. Well, I, I, I'll come at that a bit tangentially. I think that's a very good question. Um, what motivated my colleague Claire Hampson um, and some of her close associates was, was a worry that epigenetics might become a way of, curiously, of tightening up the, this definitional approach, the, the, the reification, if you like, these diseases, these discourses. Because you could, it, it see, you know, I posed it as freedom to some extent, but you could go the other way. You could say, well, now we've identified in ACHD as a kind of epigenetic disorder. We found these epigenetic markers. Now it, we know it's epigenetic, they say, and we know which molecules are doing this. And we then, we then uh, actually undercut attempts to move away to mm -hmm. thinking I don't, more holistically uh, and, and resisting, resisting that, that kind of categorization and that normative judgment. I mean, is that kind of mm -hmm. yeah. There's a question here. Yeah, I, you know, I'm interested in, in the idea of, um, so I want to step maybe sideways from the idea of epigenetics um, and the idea of transgenerational inheritance. Um, and I'm interested because um, I don't know too much about Mamie Persinger's um, Persinger's, uh, I don't know too much about her as a poet, but I know that uh, in the context of Asian American literature, there's a, you know, one of the common tropes is the mother-daughter relationship. Um, and in particular, it's the, uh, the inheritance of political trauma, social trauma, the persistence of trauma across generations. Um, and so I'm wondering if in some ways um, the, the, the pesticide, the worry that, the worry that you were naming is in some ways a kind of metaphoric 
discussion, um, ah. a kind of physiological, yes. um, a, a way to kind of get at different kinds of uh, ways in which privation, trauma, um, different kinds of, you know, war, you know, wh whatever it is, the, the kind of context of Asian American immigration um, is sort of transmitted historically and becomes a legacy passed on from mother to daughter. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a really great question. The question is sort of uh, to what extent might be the, the, the genetic uh, motif that, that links the, the, the fear of, of bad genetic transmission from mother to daughter, uh, the, the fear that pesticides, or, this is the autobiographical element, I should say, the pesticides are not in the, the poem, um, might, might actually be a way of fig figuring a much wider sense of historical trauma and transmission. And then also the insistence uh, or the idea of um, a kind of uh, insistence or a hope in selfhood and singularity. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, um, um, I think that it is, the work is open to that reading. Bersenbrugger uh, uh, herself, uh, and, and a number of the critics who've written on her have commented on this, has, has scrupulously avoided that kind of thematization. So it's very, it's not like reading Neil Min Kim, for example, who's another quite avant-garde Asian American uh, poet, uh, because there, you don't have the same sense of uh, themes linking to the history. And in fact, this poem is very unusual. Even in the book itself, the, all the other poems are very much uh, avoiding any, anything like you say. Um, but I, I think for that very reason that, that, that it, it is open to this reading. That's the par you know, just paradoxically, she leaves it open for us to think about this as a way of, of meditating on uh, generational inheritance and so forth. Um, and, and she's and it's and Asian American critics who write on her are, are, have lots of very interesting things to say about the seeming silence in her work. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just trying to think what is it this book called Asian American Identities, but it's got a much longer title. Um, <clears throat> and because there's another poem called Endocrinology, which also uses <coughs> scientific material. Um, um, I'm trying to think how, I'm not sure if I'm not, I quite know how to answer you. Well, I, mean, I, 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 think, I think you're doing, I, I think you, you know, because I kind of moved off of that, the genetics a little bit, but I think to, the, to the, little, the little bit of the poem that I read and a little bit from the discussion that you gave, um, it sounds as though <coughs> Bersenberger, there's a kind of a tension between, um, um, you know, the, a, a kind of resistance to the idea, an awareness of the idea that we are all, um, you know, in a way, genetically determined um, that ideas yes. and thoughts are, you know, they, these are kind of neural synapses. But then at the same time, this insistence, but yet there's a self. Yeah. Um, and so that same kind of um, tension or insistence of selfhood against social, environmental, genetic mm -hmm. factors, you might also be able to read that into, you know, an assertion of an identity, again, you know, and a refusal to say, I'm not going to locate myself entirely within a political context. Absolutely, yes, yes, and I think, I think that speaks very loudly in her work. But, but at the same time, she's not rejecting that uh, at all. I mean, she identifies as, uh, as, a, as a sort of Asian-American writer, uh, very openly, as, uh, in, in put very important to her to, to do that. Um, and, and, and I, I think I want to say, just you know, by way of coming to a close, that uh, she, 
this, this is an unusual poem in, in her body of work. And the question that I, in a way, I, I, I thought that I would be given and, uh, and just be unable to answer is, where are the other epigenetic poems? <laughs> um, because, well, I'm to which my sort of answer would, would be that they're out there, but they don't usually signal themselves by detailed discussions of genotypes and phenotypes. You have to think about what they're saying about inheritance, identity, the body, uh, uh, and, and disability. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Peter, were you saying that, that in this poem, sentences that she uses are entirely appropriate? Um, they, they, uh, they, they're all, they all start as appropriated sentences, <clears throat> but sometimes she's melded two together, sometimes she's omitted words. So they're appropriated and modified. But they are modified. They, there is a working through of the material, uh, but, but it's quite striking to find the sources. Um, and indeed, you know, there, there's a somebody, Eileen Tabios, has done in a wonderful book called Black Lightning, in which she goes to, to a number of Asian American uh, poets and looks at their notebooks. Uh, uh, has, uh, I think, done a great service to anyone wanting to think about this work. Because it, it, then the question becomes should you track the sources down? Um, you know, there's, I don't know if you know Susan Howe's work, there's been a big debate about whether you should find her sources. Uh, if, you want, if you want to. Well, well and that's, I think, yeah. the right answer. But I mean, Ezra Pound, by contrast, seems to have wanted to, to, to teach us all about Chinese history and economics and Malatesta. And he did want us to read his books and follow up his allusions. So there's a, there's a sort of a trajectory in modernism of which, in which Burson River is, is, is a part. Yeah, but Bersenberg gets into a kind of collaging here. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. Disparate voices brought together. Yes. And uh, I don't know if she's coming out with any epigenetic conclusions. You know. Well, well, she, so, well, she, you know, she goes beyond the juxtaposition. But what she's she's doing is she's putting the the language of genetic determinism under pressure, and she's doing it, I think, quite cleverly. I, I by Focusing us on the proposition, and and the, she's she's drawing our attention to the pragmatics of the proposition. The proposition, of course, is an assertion of, of something. There's a truth value. To it. You can measure it, measure the the truth of an assertion uh, in, in the form of a proposition. Um, but but she starts to hold them up rather than the way philosophers have done since Wittgenstein. Here's a proposition. What do we make of it? You know, in what world can this proposition exist? And, can, and is this the same world in which this proposition can exist and this, this one? Well, you've been a very, very good audience. So I, I, I don't know what the time is. <laughs>